Good evening, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, can I invite you to turn to Second Timothy chapter two? It's page. 1,195 in the Bibles that are in the pews, and we'll, we'll get there in a moment or two. But last week, if you were here, and I know there are a number of visitors here this evening, but what we're doing as a church is we're working our way right through the Bible in a year. And so uh, last week, we spent both our services listening to what Paul wrote to a couple of the early churches. Tonight, we're going to look at what he wrote to one person, uh, to a close friend of his called Timothy, who was a young leader in the emerging church. And in Timothy's life, Paul was a kind of personal and spiritual mentor. Now, mentoring is uh, quite a buzzword. It was really interesting that as Roy prayed for Claire, he, or Claire? No, he didn't pray for Claire. He prayed for Clay. But as he prayed for Clay, he actually used the word mentor in it. But mentoring is quite a buzzword these days, mainly because researchers have found that it does make a really positive impact on people's lives. In fact, according to one organization, mentoring is the third, now you may want to disagree with this, but mentoring is the third most powerful relationship for influencing human behavior after marriage and the extended family. But what exactly is mentoring? What is a mentor? Let's get you involved. Somebody give me what comes to mind whenever they think of a mentor. A guide, thank you, Ruth. Anything else? Modeling behavior, okay, thanks Richard. Sharing wisdom, Andy, accountability, Ruth, yeah, anything else? Okay, a teacher, thank you. Good to see you. don't know your name, but you're very welcome. <laughs> Thanks for that. Walter, uh, you could, definitions and, and finding an, an adequate definition for something like a mentor is quite difficult, but let, let me just share too. Walter uh, Liefeld in his commentary on Second Timothy writes this, that to mentor a Timothy means to be available, to spend time with him or her, and to seek to facilitate rather than control the use of that person's gifts. Now that all sounds very good, but here's my favorite definition. A mentor is a brain to pick, an ear to listen, and a push in the right direction. And if you can have someone like that in your life, do you have someone like that in your life? Because if you do, it's brilliant. And if you can be that type of person for someone else, then that's really exciting. And actually, a privilege. During the week, uh, we came across this new resource from the Church Pastoral Aid Society called Mentoring Matters. We have sent for a copy of it. And it's all about setting up a church-based mentoring scheme. Actually looking at what are the distinctives of Christian mentoring. And how can it be used as a tool for discipleship and the development of leaders. And, And so hopefully, or you may hear more about that in the new year. But in Timothy's life... Paul was a brain to pick, an ear to listen, and a push in the right direction. And as he speaks into Timothy's life, Paul begins with a familiar phrase. And if you were here last Sunday morning, you should recognize this phrase. It's there in verse 1 of 2 Timothy chapter 2, and it's this. Be strong. You see, clearly to live the Christian life, you need to be. You need to be strong. 
That was Paul's perspective, and I reckon that's how most of us see it. But the critical dimension of this much-needed strength lies in its source. So, again, get you involved. If you were here last Sunday morning, Ephesians chapter 6, be strong, what's the next little phrase that Paul uses? Be strong, what? In the Lord and in his mighty power. Thanks, Jenny. Here we find this phrase, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You see, the strength that we desperately need to live this life is not found in ourselves. We constantly need to look beyond ourselves and draw strength that is available to us in Christ, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What does that phrase mean? The grace that is in Christ Jesus. Well, for me, it's a kind of catch-all phrase for everything that God offers to infuse into our lives. Can I say that again? That's for me what one of the definitions of that phrase. A kind of catch-all phrase for everything that God offers to infuse into our lives. You see, Timothy felt pretty weak most of the time. We know that, as I'm sure many of us do. He was quite a timid character. And therefore, he constantly needed to be encouraged, be strong, Timothy. And he needed to be reminded, not to grit his teeth, not to flex his muscles, but to find strength where in God's resources. Now, what Paul then goes on to say to his young protege in chapter 2 is packed with content. I am not going to offer you an exposition of 2 Timothy chapter 2. But what I want to do is I want to look at a picture. A picture that Paul paints, a bit of a portrait of what a Christian worker and a Christian minister should look like and what they should be like. And he does this using a whole variety of words and images. Now, before anyone is tempted to switch off because you think, well, hold on a minute, that's not how I see myself, a Christian worker or a Christian minister. Let me suggest that there's something in this for all of us. I think it was Luther, not someone I tend to quote very often, but I think it was Luther who said, we are all ministers of the gospel. Some of us just happen to be clergymen. And I like that. I really do like that because all of us are Christ's ambassadors, if we're Christians. Every single one of us sitting here this evening, if we are a Christian, are ministers of reconciliation. Every single one of us, if we are a Christian, has been called, commissioned to go and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. And so this picture that I'm about to attempt to paint for you, I believe, is relevant for every single person here this evening who claims to live in God, who claims to walk as Christ walked. So... Let's, before we paint the picture, take time to read the chapter. See if you can uh, pick out six specific and very vivid metaphors and images that Paul uses. Three are images he's used before and three are relatively new. And as we often do here at Windsor, let's stand for the public reading of God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship 
with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive the share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. Jump down to verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who handles correctly the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are those two who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with the inscription, The Lord knows who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes, some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all those who, are, who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful. Those who oppose him he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Grab a seat. Here's what I want you to do. Uh, turn to the person beside you and identify the six images I'm about to refer to, okay? Just turn to the person beside you, identify the six images I'm about to refer to. Okay, got them? Right, let me work our way through them, see how many of these you've got. I'm, I'm moving along here, I'm just trying to keep you with me, keep you awake. Okay? The first image that uh, Paul uses is that of a soldier. You see, Paul has seen his fair share of these. In fact, for a large chunk of his Christian life, Roman soldiers were a constant presence. And so he finds himself drawing parallels and sort of making connections between the soldier and the Christian. And his advice to Timothy is this, endure hardship like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And any soldier on active service realizes that they're not in this for the easy ride. Risk and suffering sort of go with the territory. They're part and parcel of the job. Conflict is inevitable. And Paul reminds Timothy, look, you're in a battle. This is not for the faint-hearted. Hardship is a given. And therefore, you're going to have to dig really, really deep. And whenever you think of a, a decent soldier, various thoughts come to mind. They need to be disciplined, yes, as does every single Christian. They need to be properly kitted out. 
and for those who were here last Sunday morning, that reminds us of the importance of putting on the full armor of God on a regular basis. But in 2 Timothy 2, there are a few other dimensions of a good soldier that Paul highlights for Timothy. And here they are. They are focus, obedience, and devotion. Look at verse 4. No serving soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. Rather, they try to please their commanding officer. You see, Paul wants Timothy not to get distracted. Don't get sidetracked into other issues. A serving soldier needs to be focused, and focus in the Christian life is absolutely essential. It's so easy to lose sight of what's important, of what really matters, of what is at stake. Now, Paul was not suggesting that a soldier should ignore civilian matters. Please hear this. But as a serving soldier, he's got, to be ins- he's got to ensure that he doesn't get involved in, or what that really means, he doesn't get entangled in them. And in our lives as Christians, there are many legitimate aspects of life that demand and deserve our attention. But it's so important you make sure they don't tie you up and tie you down. We need to stay focused on our calling to be good, serving soldiers of Jesus Christ. And how do you do that? Like, how do you do that? The answer is there. Through obedient devotion to Jesus. You live in a way that pleases your commanding officer. And so Paul begins to paint this picture of a Christian minister and he starts with the need to be a good soldier. Yes, you've got to endure hardship, but here's what you need. You need focus, obedience, devotion. Second image is that of an athlete. And this, what Paul writes here, is actually fascinating for us in our current context. Because look at verse 5 as to what Paul says. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Is that true? Is is that always the case? You know, we're just coming out of a week whenever Warren Gatland, the head coach of the Welsh rugby team, admitted to what? Get involved again. What did he admit to? Yes, considering cheating in the semi-final of the World Cup against France last weekend, that having lost a man to injury, then another via red card, he apparently discussed the possibility of cheating with his other coaches, but then he decided it was not the right thing to do morally. There's been lots of reaction to his admission and his decision, both positive and negative, but the idea that cheats never win is simply not true. Clearly some have followed through with that thought and some have got away with it and as we approach another olympic games drug testing will once again be needed to help address the increasing problem of competitors taking illegal performance enhancing drugs which is seen as a gross form of cheating but in paul's world no athlete was crowned unless he competed according to the rules sadly in our world that's not always the case cheats can win. Cheats do win. And therefore, Paul's teaching here jars with us a bit. Challenges, I suggest. Because Paul stressed that only those who keep the rules receive the prize. No rules, no wreath was the order of the day. And that's kind of the way it should be. 
And what Paul was emphasizing to Timothy and to each of us is this, that like athletes, we are to run the Christian race lawfully. We're to stick to the rules. We're to keep the rules. And we're to obey God's moral laws. Now, some people might begin to react to that. I'll guarantee you there are some who will react to that. Because you'll say, hang on a minute, David. Surely we're not under law. Which at one level is absolutely true in terms of our salvation. It's because of Jesus that we are rescued. Not because of our ability or otherwise to keep a whole bunch of rules and regulations. But as Christians... The law then acts as a guide to our conduct. It provides a framework for life. These rules, if that's what you want to call them, help you to get the most out of life. And if we run with that in mind, if we stick to God's rules, then it seems that we will win the prize. And so as the picture builds and more and more color gets added Paul urges Timothy to be a good soldier and a law-abiding athlete. Third image is of a farmer. Now, I know next to nothing about farming. But I do know a few farmers. And the one thing that characterizes or stands about it, of, of each one that I know is their absolute commitment to hard work. They rarely stop those who I know. In all kinds of weather, they're out there putting in long hours. There's no pain, no gain seems to be the mentality. They know that if they're going to work the land and or look after their livestock, well, then they're going to have to roll up their sleeves and get stuck in. And therefore, it's only right, as Paul says, that the hard-working farmer should be the first to receive the share of the crops. They deserve it. After all, the harvest, by and large, is down to their toil and their perseverance. And amongst other things, what Paul is doing here with Timothy, he's saying, listen, Timothy, Christian ministry, Christian service is hard work. Really is. And it requires commitment and it requires a willingness to invest time and energy. And again, I'm not sure how you react to that. Should we see ministry as hard work? We live in a society and a culture that increasingly wants quick results with a minimum of effort. And yet deep down we all know, yes, but hard work pays off. It makes a significant difference. And Paul wants to stress that value with his young mentoree. Hard work, Timothy, is what is required in ministering for the gospel. And so as this picture fills out, we see a good soldier who serves to please a law-abiding, rule-keeping athlete who wins the prize, and a hard-working farmer who gets results. But Paul then injects a piece of advice at this point, a great piece of advice that's so helpful as you engage with Scripture. Look at verse 7. He says this, Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. You see, it's absolutely vital, folks, that, We don't kind of just come here and listen to what might be described as a nice wee word or read text on a page. It's so important that we take time to reflect, to meditate, to allow this to actually filter through our thinking. And as we do that, it seems that God provides 
the necessary insight. And so, in a sense, what I'm encouraging you to do, even with what we've done so far, is is to take those first six verses away with you this week, even those first three images, and, and mull them over a bit more. Create moments of contemplation. Give God space and time to reveal further understanding because according to God's word this is what happens when you do now I want to leave the next bit for a moment and jump forward to verse 14 because in the second half of the chapter Paul provides three more images to consider not sure if you got these I'm sure you did so we've had a soldier, an athlete, a farmer verse 15 Paul refers to a workman And the key tool that is at his disposal as he constructs a life and serves others is the word of God or the word of truth. And Paul urges Timothy, listen, you've got to handle it correctly. And there's been lots of discussion about what exactly that means. But the challenge for us, I believe, is to be true to Scripture. That's what I'm taking out of it. To be people of this book. People who care about understanding it properly. People who long to speak it clearly and directly into the lives of others. And you see, just as a good workman uses tools to shape and to form and to fashion, so we can and should use God's word to reconstruct, to remodel, to rework, to refurbish our lives. And whenever we use God's word in that way, in other words, whenever we handle it correctly, then... I believe we present ourselves to God as one who is approved. As one who pleases God. And then we've got nothing to be ashamed of to pick up Paul's language. Paul wanted Timothy to be a workman immersed in, committed to God's words. And so the picture builds. And then the next image is of a clean vessel. And there's a change in imagery here, and you kind of, or at least where I've taken this from is probably better seen in the the King James translation of the Bible. And Paul uses an object this time rather than a person, so to speak. But wrapped up in this reference to a cleansed vessel is a call to holiness. And Timothy is to purify himself. And he's to purify himself so that he will be, and here's the verse from the King James Version, so that he'll be sanctified. In other words, so that he'll be set apart, distinctly different, so that he will be also useful to the master and finally ready for any good work. And so this is about clean hands and a pure heart. And this call to holiness is eternally relevant for every Christian disciple. But how do you purify yourself? How do you go about that? Well, Paul doesn't leave us guessing. He tells his young friend to do two things. To start with, you need to flee, shun, run a mile from youthful passions. He doesn't explain those. But I think we all have a fair idea what might be implied by that phrase. But it's not just about running away from something. It's about running to something. And Paul tells Timothy to go in hot pursuit of righteousness, faith, love, and peace. You see, those are the four essential marks of a Christian. 
And notice, if you look at the verse, that he's to pursue those with others who are on a similar journey, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And so I suppose one of the questions to take away from this evening is this. What direction are we running in? What are we pursuing? How are we pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace? How have I pursued those things this week? And the final image that Paul draws attention to is of a servant. The Lord's servant. And again, this is what he just calls and urges Timothy to be. And what is the fundamental characteristic of the Lord's servant? It's gentleness. He's to be kind to everyone. And even though people will struggle with what you stand for, Timothy, people will oppose you. You've got to gently instruct them. And so there needs to be humility, courtesy, and consideration, rather than any sense of a brash, aggressive, or hostile attitude as he speaks into the lives of others. And that remains our challenge today, to be people who are gentle, to be people who speak the truth with grace and love. And so there's a collage of images provided for Timothy by Paul and for each of us. Here's a picture of what a minister of the gospel should look like. A good soldier, a rule-keeping athlete, a hard-working farmer, an approved workman, a clean vessel, a gentle servant. So how do you compare? Which image or images do we need to reflect on further? I hope you'll take something from what I've shared this evening away with you. But just as a finish, let me go back to verse 8, where Paul inserts this command, Remember Jesus Christ, Timothy, raised from the dead, descended from David. You see, as Paul mentored Timothy, he wanted to make sure that he never lost sight of Jesus. That central to his faith was Jesus Christ. That the reason for Paul writing to Timothy and investing his life in him was because of Jesus. And you may think, well, hold on, how could Timothy ever forget? Why did he need to be reminded? And yet, we're all too aware of how easy it is to forget. That human memory can be notoriously fickle, especially regarding those things that should never be forgotten. And so Paul encourages Timothy in the midst of all this instruction on how to live, to remember who Jesus was. A descendant of King David, there's a reference to his birth, his humanity, and his rule. And as the one who rose again, a reference to his death and his resurrection. And so as he seeks to be these six things, Paul says, as you go about that, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus and the grace that you find in him that enables you to be strong. And you know one of the ways to ensure that we remember Jesus? It's in what we're about to do now.